The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Well, I'm very happy to be sharing this time with you tonight, and want to thank you all for coming. And tonight, what I want to talk about are the ABCs of developing a mindfulness practice in daily life. And those ABCs are awareness, balance, and connection. And those are the three cornerstones of, or three of the four cornerstones, I think, of a, of a daily mindfulness practice that nourishes and refreshes us. And the fourth cornerstone, to me, is faith, because we will practice something if we have faith in it. If we don't have faith in it, we won't put our attention and energy there. And to me, the the cornerstone of this foundation uh, that we're, that I'm referring to is faith involves learning to discard our mistaken images of ourselves and trust in our own Buddha nature, our divine nature, and our own capacity to develop inner wisdom and the freedom that goes along with that inner wisdom. One of the things that I love about Buddhism is it's based on the premise of our original goodness. And it's not based on the premise of original sin, that we're the, these unworthy beings that have to walk around very guarded uh, against doing the wrong thing. What we do is we come back in touch with our true and our divine nature. So that's the cornerstone of faith. And the, the cornerstone of awareness involves understanding and paying attention to our internal landscape and learning to tune into our own needs and limits and resources. And it's with that kind of awareness that we develop inner freedom and the capacity to actualize this inner freedom outwardly is the essence of a nourishing mindfulness practice. And in that process, freedom of choice begins to replace reactivity in our relationships with others and in our relationship to the events in our daily lives. And balance, the cornerstone of balance, involves developing the wisdom of the the middle way and the skills that really support us in taking care of ourselves in a way that lead to a more vital and mindful life that nourishes ourselves and others. And the central skill in balance to me is learning how to balance being with doing. And connection is about being in relationship with others. And the point of practice is to live more fully, to be more present to ourselves, to be more present to others, to love in a greater way. And the litmus test of our mindfulness practice is relationship and how we are in relationship. So the cornerstones of a nourishing mindfulness practice, faith, awareness, balance, and connection, to me are the foundation of something extremely important, and that is 
a life of acceptance. And acceptance is at the, the heart of living mindfully. And eventually we have to surrender to the understanding that life is simply not resolvable. And although we're powerless over the events that happen in our lives, we are not powerless over how the heart and mind respond to the events that happen in our lives. And this is the understanding that brings freedom. And it's also the essence of the Four Noble Truths in, in Buddhism. The first is that um, life is challenging. It's always going to pre- present us with events and people that bring up a, a series of, of dis-ease, uh, challenging events that bring dis-ease to our life. And the second noble truth is that it's not these events in our lives that bring disease or suffering, but how we respond to these events. And the third noble truth is that peace is possible, happiness is possible. And the fourth is that there is a path to this happiness and peace. So a very fundamental part of developing mindfulness in daily life is learning how to accept the present moment as it is and how to bring some awareness to our reactions and get very, very curious about them as they arise. And as a result of this kind of awareness, life becomes a very rich tapestry because Whatever occurs then is the path and all things are workable. So often I get the question, okay, what does acceptance have to do with working for change individually and collectively? How does working for change individually and collectively fit in with acceptance? If we just accept everything, how does anything ever change. And if we are accepting, does it mean that we lose our motivation to work for social change and and social justice? And what is the relationship between acceptance and skillful action? And many people make the mistake of equating acceptance and equanimity with not caring. And acceptance doesn't suggest that we do not deeply care about others or the world around us. And neither does it suggest a passive stance that allows ourselves or others to be exploited or to let people or circumstances walk all over us. The acceptance is of what is already here in the present moment that we do not control. And unless I'm a time traveler, I can't change whatever has already happened, no matter how much I brood and ruminate about it. And on the collective level, although we are talking about accepting what has already happened, we're not talking about accepting the destruction of our environment, we're not talking about accepting injustice, and we're not talking about accepting exploitation in any present moment. And this is where we come to the complexities of our individual and and cultural conditioning. One of the, the lessons of Buddhist teachings is essentially no self, 
no problem. However, it's one thing to grasp that form doesn't confer anything special, and another to be oblivious to the privileges one has or does not have as a result of that form. So I think all, most of us understand that categories such as gender and race and class, ethnicity and sexual orientation, as well as, as many others, come with cultural expectations that confer privileges in the form of unearned assets on some and the denial of those privileges and assets to others. So a large percentage of self-grasping is not just ego grasping, but grasping that is deeply conditioned, not only by our families of origin and our ancestors, because we're standing on the shoulders of all that came, all who came before us, but grasping that is deeply conditioned by its residence in a male or female body, in a, in a white or non-white body, in a heterosexual or non-heterosexual body. So while an enlightened mind might be beyond these categories and notions, the problem is is that unenlightened minds are decidedly not beyond concern with these things, and they're still in a position to exert power over others. And until those attachments are cut, there is going to be ego-clinging by all of us. Those who exert power will continue to cling to their privilege, and those they exert power over will continue to make adaptations to the discrimination and oppression that they experience. And some of those adaptations are conscious, and some of them are unconscious. And some of those adaptations have been passed on from generation to generation. When I... um, came onto the Madison Police Department. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I was among, I wasn't in the first class of women, but was still the the pioneers, early early pioneers of women uh, on the force. But even uh, more challenging is I was an out lesbian when I came on the department, and that was kind of unheard of. And so during my first field training experience, people were wearing happily hetero and straight as an arrow buttons. So um, I've experienced some of this in my own life. And as engaged practitioners, we face so many challenging questions and dilemmas. How do we free ourselves from the adaptations that we've made to our individual and collective conditioning? And how do we cut through our sense of privilege in some arenas of our lives and our inferior status in other arenas of our lives? And how do we not concretize others into enemies while taking action to end exploitation and injustice? And how do we develop the discerning wisdom to know when fierce compassion rather than gentle compassion, is called for. And part of a nourishing mindfulness practice involves embracing these questions, as well as the courage and willingness to to take them on. And with respect to any form of unskillful behavior, violence or 
exploitation that we encounter in our lives or that we witness. What I've found is that with the right intention and skillful means that it is possible to take action in relation to the behavior for the purpose of transforming rather than exacerbating the violence or the violation. And most of us have lots of strong identities. We're Jewish, we're people of color, we're a member of the LGBTQ community. I, love, I call us the alphabet community because it just gets longer and longer over the years. Um, we're fathers, we're mothers, we're cops, we're lawyers, we're addicts, we're recovering addicts. So we have lots of different identities that can be very, very strong. And while we need to make sure that we're not participating in our own oppression, at the same time we have to take responsibility for looking at some of the adaptations that we've made that may no longer be necessary, um, that come from those identities. For example, at some point, I have to take responsibility for asking myself the question, do I want to be a lesbian or do I want to be free? And a nourishing mindfulness practice to me includes the willingness to wear all our identities just a little bit more loosely. What I've found in my own life is sometimes we leave behind the props and expectations that we're so eager to condemn only to find out that we're shackled by a new set of of expectations or conditioning in another form with a different set of peers and in other areas of our lives. So perhaps we can't be Jewish enough or black enough or gay enough or feminist enough and even spiritual enough. And to negotiate our individual and and cultural conditioning requires a wise and deep understanding of our interdependence with others. And this also can lead to very complex personal choices. For example, most of us understand that if some of us have more, some of us have less. But when it comes to making choices about where to send our children or grandchildren to school, it's really hard to make a choice not to give them every possible competitive advantage. So we take them out of public schools and send them to private schools, move out of the cities that we work in, and move into gated communities or suburbs. And for every better school and community that we move into, we leave behind a more disadvantaged school or neighborhood. And I've seen this in my own community. Uh, One of the the first chief that I worked for was, um, and I, I worked for three different chiefs, and the first one was was very progressive. Uh, he really had a, a commitment to changing the culture of the police department, or I don't think I uh, would have lasted in in the early days. And one of the things, though, the only mistake that I think. Uh, his name was uh, Chief David Cooper, and he was actually a chief in one of the, I can't remember which city it was, in one of the small cities around the Minneapolis area before he was uh, the the chief in Madison. And 
one of the things he did in negotiating with the union is he allowed, um, it, he opened the door to city workers being able to move out of the city. First police officers and then city workers. And to me that was a real mistake because if you're paid a salary by a city, a government entity, you should be contributing to the tax base of that city. And what we found in the Madison Public Schools is that 20% of the population of Madison, people of color, and over 50% of the kids in the public schools are people of color. So it's very interesting to see the choices that are being made. And we bring alive the compassion and the justice and the liberation that we intellectually aspire to by bringing them into our own choices, into our own direct experiences in this moment. So what I want to to do now is I want to explore each of these cornerstones more thoroughly. So the first cornerstone, faith, is a very strange and paradoxical thing for some of us as, as Buddhists. And faith is also a word that in the past I associated a lot with fundamentalism and righteousness. And the reason many of us are attracted to this path is because it doesn't require us to believe in anything except our own direct experiences. And devoting ourselves to a spiritual life that is based upon our direct experiences can be ambiguous and and challenging. So the question becomes, what exactly is it that I have faith in? When I ask myself that question, I came up with three responses. First, it's a conviction or confidence in my own ability to engage in a spiritual practice. So my faith deepens, not as I'm taught about what to believe, but as I have tried on the practice of mindfulness in my daily life, in the classroom of my daily life, and discovered that it really does make a difference in my life and in my relationships with others. And second, faith to me is a developing willingness to live with ambiguity, to live inside the questions and paradoxes, and to be a little more willing to leave behind the the comfort of, of answers. So faith is what allows us to be able to straddle what's known as the relative and and ultimate dimensions. And the great masters say that paradox is how ultimate reality looks to the dualistic mind. For example, mindfulness is effortless and it takes effort. If I have one lit candle and I use it to light a second candle, is there one flame or two flames? Am I extending or receiving in this moment? 
And if you can understand that it doesn't have to be one or the other, that both can be true at the same time, then you can begin to straddle this so-called relative and ultimate dimension without having to live in, in one or the other. And third, faith is the possibility I feel when I'm connected to a larger reality, when I can wholeheartedly sit in the mystery and space of not knowing, while at the same time feel my connection with all that is. So faith is what enables me to offer my heart to the truth of whatever's happening in any given moment. And that's no matter how painful or no matter how joyful it is. And as we learn to open to whatever shows itself in the mind, we also learn the art of opening to the world. And we experience the world's suffering as well as its great beauty. And when we decide to stay present for all of it, that's when we embark on the spiritual path in earnest. And with the cornerstone of awareness, I begin to get glimpses of the understanding that my only true limitation is believing the false and conditioned to be my total reality. And as this understanding develops, I develop this sincere desire to stop subscribing to a wounded vision of myself, to be willing to let go of my attachment to a wounded self. And although my own teacher, Thitnan Han, or Thai, as we lovingly call him, often invites us to start a mindfulness practice by bringing our full attention to our daily activities, we misinterpret his teachings if we understand mindfulness is simply a tool to slow down enough to notice and enjoy things or to simply pay attention to the external world more thoroughly. Because unless mindfulness also includes meditative practices that develop the awareness that helps us work with the habitual and harmful patterns of our mind, it's not going to lead to transformation. It's not going to lead to freedom. And meditation is how we develop the awareness that leads to an unconditional friendship with ourselves, which is known as mitri. How we learn about our compulsions, how we learn about our unconscious storylines, and how we develop kindness and compassion, first for ourselves and then for others. And there are two components to uh, meditation and mindfulness practice. Concentration and insight. And these two components, like the four cornerstones of, of a, a daily mindfulness practice, they're interdependent, and the skills of one reinforce the skills of the other. So the first component of meditation, concentration, involves stopping with a one-pointed focus. So we start by selecting a very neutral and narrow part of our experience that's not intellectually or emotionally charged to choose where and how we pay attention. And by simply focusing 
on one thing, such as the physical sensations of the breathing or the sensations in the body or the sounds around us, we learn this art of, of stopping and concentration that is so central to a mindfulness practice, so central to being able to pay attention to one thing at a time. So we practice sitting and walking and eating meditation to develop this kind of concentration. We develop concentration by very gently and compassionately escorting the mind back to its seat of the or the anchor we're using, whether it's the breath or to our steps in walking meditation or to tasting our food um, while we're eating. And we bring our attention back every time that we notice that it's wandered away. And this isn't a failure. This is the essence of a mindfulness practice, is being aware that the mind has wandered away, wandered away and be able to bring it back to the present moment. And by doing this, we learn how to disentangle our mind from all the thoughts, emotions, and storylines that show themselves. And this is how we begin to train for the discernment required to distinguish between the actual experience in the present moment and our perceptions or reactions to the experience. So meditation instruction often begins by simply urging us to enjoy and come back to our breathing over and over again. And that's because if we're more committed to our breathing than we are to our resentments, our our fantasies, or our self-preoccupations, or our judgments, or our comparisons and and measurements, or our memories and our to-do lists, then our preoccupation with all these other things except breathing will eventually fade away. So we're training ourselves. And through meditation and mindfulness, we learn that the whole art of living wisely depends on awareness, on our ability and our willingness to pay attention. However, this kind of concentration, concentration in and of itself, There's nothing about that alone that is wholesome because a thief can use concentration to break into your house or your computer, right? So meditation is not just about not having thoughts or being perfectly concentrated, but rather about being aware of whatever is happening. So we're practicing to become aware of what our minds are doing without resistance and without rejection or the desire to change anything. So the insight component of meditation leads to the awareness on and off the cushion or chair that enables us to meet whatever arises with some curiosity and some equanimity and some compassion. So we're developing a compassionate state of mind that emphasizes acceptance and openness rather than guilt blame or shame about one's behavior. And meditation is what gives us the ability not to be over-identified with our thinking and to understand how our perceptions, which power our emotions, are the product 
of conditioning, of causes and conditions that need to be examined and understood rather than accurate representations of reality. So it's often said that these perceptions of ours are real, but not true. Ten different people will see ten different things. And we often mistake our conditioned perceptions for the truth. That's what I mean by being over-identified with our thinking. And there's a Tibetan teacher that calls this whole process putting makeup on space. I love that, putting makeup on space. And let me give you some examples of how this works. So when I do prison work, I often do this exercise to to help the people I'm working with understand um, the difference sort of between or how the, the the truth, quote, unquote, can be very, very different and how it's really our perceptions of something that makes all the difference. So I'll send three people out of the room. And I'll have everybody, I'll say to everybody else, build me a structure in 60 seconds. Just randomly put together, use the cushions, the chairs, whatever you see that can easily be put back together, um, and build me a, a structure. And then what I do, and, and it's always interesting to see what people come up with. And then I bring each person, one at a time, into the room, have them stand in exactly the same place, and I say, what do you see? And it always goes something like this. I see George Washington on the Potomac River. Or the second person says, I see chaos and homelessness. And the third person says, I see art and beauty. And those are actually three representations of looking at the same structure that I actually heard. So then I'll say, well, who's right? And who's wrong? And can everybody be right and wrong? If you understand, if you can begin to hold these things at the same time, then you're beginning to understand what I'm talking about by straddling the relative and the the ultimate dimension. Let me give you another example that comes from my my own police career. When I was a, a rookie police officer, I think I w- it was my very first week um, on patrol. And my very first week by myself without a field training officer. And I came to briefing. Briefing, as always happens, 15 minutes before the shift actually starts. And I walk into briefing, and the lieutenant, the officer in charge, says to me, Maples. There's somebody down in the basement. I want you to go down there and get them out of there. And that was because all our squads are down there. It's it's this garage that usually you can't get into. Somebody had gotten in there. And the property room is also down there. So, you know, this is my very first assignment. And I want to do good. And I go downstairs and I make contact with this gentleman and tell him he has to leave the area. And he says, no, I don't. I'm the president. I don't have to go anywhere. And, uh, you know, there was nothing violent about him. There was no reason for me to put my hands on him in any way. So I stood there for I don't know how long arguing with him, trying to talk him out of his perception that he was the president of the United States, right? 
And so by this time, people are getting out of briefing. Veteran officers are coming down. One veteran officer sees me and sees knows exactly what's happening. He says, hey, rookie, let me show you something. He goes and he gets the key to the nearest squad that I'm standing by. He opens the back door and he says, Mr. President, your limo awaits you. Guy gets right in, they drive away. <laughs> I'm still standing there, huh? You know? um, so that, that was... Uh, That was a real lesson to me. Um, A third example comes from uh, a retreat I did where um, I'm so happy this woman told the entire group when the retreat was over about her experience. When she first got to the retreat, she used the elevator to uh, bring her suitcase up um, to the, I don't know if she was on the second or third floor, and she was really ambiguous, um, somewhat felt very ambiguous um, or divided about being there and thought she had way too much to do and knew she had made a mistake by, by coming, was just filled with this agitation of having been multitasking for, for quite a while. And so she pushes the button for the elevator and the elevator stops and is stuck, right? So she's like, I came to this. I knew I shouldn't have come to this. And she's getting more and more agitated. Picks up the phone. Nobody will answer the phone. And all of a sudden, somebody says, Hi, Jean. And she turns around, and it was the door behind her that had opened rather than the one in front of her. And so sometimes liberation is as easy as walking through the open door. But if you can't, if You can't find it if you have a story about it and you don't understand that you're likely to have a story about it. And as my Mr. President story illustrates, you can't expand your options if you're attached to your story or over-identified with your thinking. So one of the my favorite calligraphies of ties is, um, are you sure? Are you sure? It's a question that is extremely important to ask many times a day. And the framework of the, of the psychology of mindfulness provides resources that offer us the ability not to reject our defensive habit energy, but to use awareness to gain access to the intelligence and resources that are hidden within it. And with the awareness developed in meditation and mindfulness, we can develop the ability to water the seeds that are positive and are fruitful in our lives and reduce how often we water the seeds that are more dysfunctional. And right diligence or right effort in this area requires us to be both a good curator of the museum of our past, as well as a proactive gardener of our store consciousness. And this means that we have to develop and find a balance between the tools of reflection and presence. So reflection provides us with insight about the causes and conditions that have shaped us. And we all make adaptations in childhood as a result of our lives 
inside the generations of ancestors and structures that we have inhabited, those, the structures in which we were raised. And we often made these adaptations to win the approval of our caregivers. And these adaptations often served us so well that they became our winning formulas in how we approach life. So, for example, I was the classic hero child uh, in a family with two alcoholic parents. And my winning formula was to try to please others through achievement. And I relied heavily on trying hard, sheer tenacity, and the ability to set and accomplish my goals for not just the approval of, of people, but my success, quote, unquote, later in the external world. And this winning formula of mine is how I sincerely believe that one went about the business of becoming a better person. And sooner or later, these winning formulas that we adopt in in childhood to survive our circumstances usually reach a point of diminishing returns and become somewhat dysfunctional in nature or at least an obstacle to our further unfolding. Tara Brock refers to this as living in trance. So these winning formulas and these defensive patterns that we develop in the families that that we were raised in are often the real dowry that all of us bring or any of us bring, not just to our practice, but to our relationships with, with others. And these defensive patterns are certainly not our fault, but developing the awareness that enables us to transform them is our responsibility. And reflection, often with the help of a therapist or a guide or a spiritual mentor, is an important tool in this process. And presence enables us to be the wise gardener by paying attention to what seeds we're watering in the present moment. So similar to our flower and vegetable gardens, whatever kind of seed that we plant and water in our mind and with our speech and actions will determine what grows and gets stronger and what doesn't grow. So what we feed or don't feed is very, very important. If we have a desire to be more patient, then we have to actively water and cultivate that seed. If we want to be less angry or less irritable, we have to find ways to stop watering and feeding the seeds of anger and irritability. And what I've found in my own life is I can't always think myself into a new way of acting, but I can act my way into a new way of thinking. And that's part of of faith, in a way. So let's move on to um, balance, the third cornerstone of a nourishing daily mindfulness practice. So balance is often about understanding the wisdom of the middle way, but I want to focus on the kind of balance that comes from the awareness that, that we've been talking about. So living mindfully leads to a sense of balance 
and equanimity because the automatic compulsive quality of habit energy is incompatible with the open spaciousness developed by meditation and mindfulness practice. So with a nourishing mindfulness practice, we're training for a stability of mind, for a type of mind that's more comfortable with, or as comfortable with being as it is with doing. And this is difficult because it's the exact opposite kind of mind that's applauded in the external world and that helps us achieve our goals and even manage the daily details of our lives. So the doing mode involves things like problem solving and careful analysis and judgment and comparison. And we not only rely on it for our survival, but it's responsible for some of the greatest achievements of of humankind that are crucial to our own health and well-being. But the being mode that we're training for in mindfulness isn't necessarily better, but it's just different. So rather than thinking about things from a problem-solving mode, we experience them directly. And in the being mode of mind, we're not forbidden to think about the past or plan for the future, but we're aware of when we are doing that. And the the reason that we practice mindfulness to develop the being mode of mind is to bring it into balance with the doing mode of mind, which we're usually quite quite good at. So mindfulness and the kind of balance that mindfulness brings about requires consciously developing the being mode of mind through meditation and mindfulness. And what I found um, in my later life with with some experience and with 25 years of, of practice is that the quality of my doing is dependent on the quality of my being. So if I can't succeed in being, I can't succeed in doing. And awareness keeps the old habits favored by the automatic pilot of the doing mind from having the final say in determining our behavior. And I want to give you some suggestions for bringing more balance to your life through the development of the being mode of mind. So the, the first one is to develop a consistent meditation practice. Um, meditation is a lot like exercise. The best form is that which you will actually do. So if you're not meditating regularly, pick a consistent time of day, a consistent place, and choose a realistic amount of time, no matter how brief, and see if you can practice every day. So if you can't meditate for half an hour, do 15 or 20 minutes. And if you can't do that, do 5 or 10 minutes. And if you can't do that, go look at your cushion or smell it. And make your busyness your, your meditation. So develop a consistent meditation practice. And the, the second suggestion is to establish daily moments of mindfulness. So one way to bring the practice alive 
in your life consistently as well as to slow down and try not to do more than you are able to do is to establish moments of mindfulness throughout our daily lives. And a place to start is to choose one activity each day and just allow yourself a little extra time for this activity. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's driving to work or taking the bus or doing the laundry or reading a bedtime story or eating a meal or going for a walk um, or doing the dishes. Just a lot more time to it and notice what happens when you do that. And the next suggestion is to make a very conscious decision to slow down. We can't develop the ability to be fully present with the kind of awareness in the present moment that we're attempting to develop without slowing down. And I think many of us get addicted to the adrenaline that comes from living life on fast-forward and, and multitasking, but the byproducts of that kind of rushing and living on fast-forward are usually agitation and irritation. And there's simply no room to be able to meet an unexpected or unanticipated event with any kind of equanimity or acceptance. And most of us understand that pausing and refraining is an essential spiritual, is an essential spiritual skill. So it requires the ability to put some space between a stimulus and our reaction to that stimulus. To put some space between our thoughts and our words. Our thoughts and our actions. And we simply can't do that if we're running on fast forward. And rushing by its nature not only creates irritation, but it makes it almost impossible to work with the ingrained habit energy that does not serve us well. And it certainly doesn't allow us to experience the kind of spaciousness that's necessary to develop a daily mindfulness practice. And what I've found is that rushing is a habit. It's a habit that can be broken. And I see this. If you're a teacher, you understand this. Um, It doesn't matter if you teach in a classroom of eighth graders, if you teach at a university, if you're a Dharma teacher, because what you'll notice is it's always the same people that are coming in late or always the same people that are going, even at a retreat. You know, they're just barely making it before that that meditation starts. I notice that as both a student and a teacher. So I'm absolutely convinced from deciding quite a while ago in my own life that I was going to give up rushing, that rushing is a habit. The next suggestion for bringing more balance into your life is learn how to practice in a way that you're not practicing for results. So don't practice for results. And the spiritual path can be misinterpreted by the goal-oriented mind as being a path of overcoming, of, of transcending and renouncing those things about ourselves that seem to hinder 
the attainment of our goals. And it's critical to remember that our spiritual work is not about negating the negative. And this is the deficit model of the goal-oriented, overdeveloped, doing mode of mind that wants to disguise project mentality as spirituality. And when we focus primarily on getting the meditative form, quote, right, unquote, we're no longer engaged in an act of surrender that is going to bring freedom. Instead, we're engaged in yet another of a never-ending series of self-improvement projects. And that's not what mindfulness is about. Balance and the energy of mindfulness don't come about from pushing or achieving. Um, Similar to nature, much of the growth that happens with a mindfulness practice happens naturally. Um, A useful analogy that I like to use is swimming. So people that begin to, to swim don't engineer what happens to their lungs as they practice swimming, right? What begins to happen is just a product of of practicing. So as the swimmer develops some endurance, he or she begins to investigate their strokes and notice what adjustments will make them more proficient. So energy giving rise to the ability to swim for longer periods of time is just naturally developed with that process. And joy and ease come with the concentration of the absorption of the mind in a single-pointed way into just this one activity of swimming. And with time, the swimming begins to produce an equilibrium that can be carried into other activities. This is very similar to meditation and mindfulness. But if the swimmer gives up with the beginning obstacles and distractions that are encountered, the swimmer never gets to experience the benefits that develop quite naturally. And the example of swimming leads to my next suggestion for bringing some balance into your life, and that's to carve out time for the activities that you enjoy, to consciously water the seeds of joy. So for those of us who don't enjoy swimming, the process is the same with the things that we do enjoy. So all we have to do is participate deeply. Those are baseball scores. That's that's, uh, one of the activities that I participate deeply in. (laughs) Fantasy baseball and being a Brewer fan. I used to play. um, And that was actually my very first Zen activity, is, uh, is baseball. And that's what happened, is that, you know, when you're absorbed in an activity for the sake of the activity. Enlightenment isn't that much separate from the activity if that is what gives you joy and ease because that is also developing that one-pointed concentration that we talked about that is an element of mindfulness. So practicing in the activities that water the seeds of joy for us is a wonderful way to develop 
the concentration element of mindfulness. And here's a trick to this. I, I mean, it sounds paradoxical, but in order to do this, you almost have to proactively manage your time. Because if you wait, if you're really busy, if you wait until you feel like doing it, you won't do it. So the way I do this is I have my 2015 calendar on January 1st of 2014. And I put everything in there that I want to do, and then I schedule everything around that. And I also did that when I was working a straight six-on, three-off schedule, is I learned to schedule things. Otherwise, I found myself developing what I call the I used to syndrome. I, I used to garden. I used to... Uh, I used to bike. I I used to go and listen to concerts. I used to play music. I used to do this. I used to do that. I used to have coffee with friends. So what I found is proactively scheduling these things that I really enjoy makes a huge difference. And the last suggestion is for bringing balance into your life is to pay conscious attention to your environment. So being a good gardener of your Store consciousness in the way that I've been talking about requires mindfully paying attention to our environment, who and what we surround ourselves with and what we consume. So we absorb whatever energy that we surround ourselves with in the material world, in the geographical world, in the physical world, in the relational world, and in the spiritual realm. So it's important to be aware of these things and to learn to choose wisely. So a simple test is just to ask yourself, what seeds are being watered by the people around me and the environments that I place myself in? Are the seeds of kindness and understanding and loving being watered? Or are the seeds of anger, irritation, and frustration? being water. So let's move on to the fourth and, and final cornerstone of a nourishing mindfulness practice, and that's connection. So connection is about strengthening our relationships with others. It's about cultivating, actively cultivating compassion and building healthy relationships families and workplaces and organizations and communities. So building interpersonal and and community relationships is about acting on and valuing our interdependence with each other and expanding our sense of belonging. And the cohesion of community is formed exactly from expanding that sense of belonging. It's shaped by the idea that our individual and collective transformations are intimately connected with each other. And at times, embracing the fabric of our connection and interdependence with each other in community is very nourishing. And at times, it is extremely challenging, as we have all experienced But our relationships with others are very important stages of discovery that each of us needs in order to participate 
in our own transformation. It's really easy to sit on the cushion and feel compassion for everybody, right? But it's a little bit harder when your edges start to um, rub up against other people's. I was on retreat for uh, a total of three months last year, two months uh, at one time and uh, another month later on. And it, it was so interesting to me because at, I would have these experiences side by side. I'd go in and um, I'd sit on the cushion and be, okay, what do you have for me today, world? And I'd feel this incredible spaciousness and this sense of connection and this resting in the vastness and in um, many of my meditations. I walk out of the meditation room feeling connected to everybody and I, I was at the, the Forest Refuge which is a, a co-ed place. And the bathrooms are co-ed and I'd walk into a bathroom and the toilet seat would be up and I'd be, really? Really? In my mind, you know, can't we have just one social privilege? And just that fast it would go from this to that. So, um, you know, relationships, we are always going to experience both sides of our nature, the, the call of our, our inner Buddha and our true nature and our larger being, our divided self, as well as the hidden landmines of our imperfect and human selves in the form of core wounds. And relationships hold great transformative potential for us because any unfinished business will become a compelling agenda in close and intimate relationships. And all that conditioned habit energy planted in the museums of our store consciousness that we talked about earlier is often lying hidden and dormant and then somebody comes along and waters some of those hidden seeds and we react. And then we have that challenging opportunity to encounter the closed-off parts of ourselves that we might not be on friendly terms with. And then we react. And so relationship conflicts of any kind usually revoke and snag us in some constricting identity from that museum of our past. And the conflict can actually go nowhere as long as we continue playing it out with others instead of addressing its source. And its source is usually the seeds of the negative view of ourselves that have been activated and are undermining our basic sense of validity and worth. And one of the miracles of the present moment is that it offers vehicles such as compassion and forgiveness for ourselves and others to repair the past, as well as the opportunity to forge connection and begin anew with each other in the present moment. And this thing we call compassion contains lots of threads. It contains threads of patience and receptivity, awareness, forgiveness, courage, and honesty, and the willingness to surrender ego and self-righteousness form part of the character of compassion. And mistakes and regrets are the building blocks of compassion. So compassion requires us to soften 
and stay present in those moments when we're most likely or prone to recoil and flinch. And it requires a commitment to dismantling the boundaries that have divided us from others and continue to divide us from others. But compassion is not unrealistic. It doesn't require us to give up our quest for justice or to save all beings or to lay down our life for that of another or find a solution for all the problems of the world. And nor should it be mistaken for the passivity that enables abuse or exploitation and injustice to continue. Compassion simply asks us to explore how we can transform our heart and mind in this moment. How do we receive the person who is right before us in this moment? And it doesn't call for these grand or heroic gestures. It only asks us to find in our hearts the simple but profound willingness to be present with one individual at a time with the larger commitment to contribute to the collective well-being and ease of all beings. So it can be as simple as a word of kindness or a loving touch or a patient presence or even a willingness, just a willingness to point ourselves in the direction of stepping beyond our fears and reactions. These are all gestures of compassion that can transform a moment of fear or pain for ourselves and others. And these are the kinds of moments that build world peace. And it's important to to understand that compassion that involves self-neglect is always incomplete. So countless people in situations are going to plead for our presence and care. And the opportunities to meet the broken and fragile present themselves to most of us on a daily basis. And the wisdom of compassion asks us to acknowledge our own boundaries and limits. And we can't make others happy. We can't make their suffering go away. We can only be present. And in that engagement, we're never helpless. So the path of compassion is to listen and respond, including to the voices of our own heart, our own needs. And two of the near enemies that can masquerade as compassion are guilt and self-denial. So boundaries can be born of, of fear or wisdom. And it's important to know the difference between acts and words that come from love and those that come from guilt and self-denial. And patience with ourselves is a forerunner of compassion. And patience is usually cultivated right in the midst of resistance and struggle. And it's the quality that allows us to soften and to stay connected and to be present uh, and intimate with all the difficult moments that we are prone to run from. And it also teaches us our capacity to bear the the difficult. We don't have to start with the most challenging people or situations. We all have experiences on a daily basis that we can 
begin to bring some patience to. The keys you can't find, um, the phone you're looking for. Once I was talking on the phone while I was looking for it. That was really one of my more mindful moments, I have to tell you. Uh, A traffic jam that you're caught in, the third pair of mittens that your kid has lost in a month, the pain in your knee or your back, the line you're waiting in, the uh, item that you really need for work or this presentation or this meeting that you left at home. I don't know if I left anybody out yet, but there's a Tibetan teacher that calls these small opportunities to practice patience, bourgeois suffering. Um, So it's important to understand that patience isn't submission to abuse and exploitation or a passive acceptance of suffering or pain. The near enemies of patience are endurance and stoicism and resignation and despair. And the way you can tell these near enemies are they're all forms of withdrawal that take us away from people in which we surrender rather than build our connection with others. So the threads of compassion are always going to lead us toward connection rather than withdrawal. And this is the choice that we're asked to make in life over and over and over again in some way. Will we move toward or away from others? And it's patience that cultivates the Commitment and inner steadiness not to abandon anyone or anything in our hearts, even if we have to take space from them. And it asks us to explore what it would be like to live life or to meet life without conditions or timetables and to understand that all our actions have these tremendous ripple effects, many of which we can't possibly be aware of at the time. And compassion is no exception to paradox and mystery. And the ostensible paradox of compassion asks us to accept that it is impossible. It is absolutely impossible to end all the suffering in the world, yet asks us to respond as if it were possible. And compassion won't stop anger, but it will keep us from ending our connection with others. And if we don't recognize our challenging emotions, then rage and blame and bitterness are likely to shatter us and destroy our hearts and lives. When I showed up at my first retreat with my beloved teacher, Ty, in 1991, I came armed with the protective anger that comes from a numb and defended heart that was not only the result of my own conditioning, but it was also the result of my experiences as a cop. I I had been a cop for seven years when I attended that first retreat. And it was, you know, uh, it was the result of, of witnessing the heartbreaking effects of violence and aggression and discrimination and poverty on a nightly basis and growing increasingly numb. And I remember at that first retreat, I was struggling with whether or not to take 
the there had been a presentation on the mindfulness trainings, and there was a question and answer session. And uh, somebody asked me if I was going to take this first mindfulness training, which was about a reverence for life. And I said, uh, well, I can't do that. I'm a cop. And they, um, I, I believe it was Sister Chong Kong, who then everything was so small, you had this opportunity to interact with people very closely. And she said, who else would we want to be mindful than somebody that we entrust to carry a gun on a daily basis? And that just changed everything for me. And Ty taught me that even something like carrying a gun on a daily basis can be an act of love if one is armed with understanding and compassion. And when he uh, transmitted the lamp to me or ordained me as a Dharma teacher, he gave me the directive to try to bring mindfulness to the criminal justice system. And when he made me a Dharma teacher in 2007, I presented him with a short practice poem, or as we call them, gatha, a practice gatha, that I wrote for police officers as a tribute to him. And I want to end by just sharing my gatha to tie with you. Breathing in, I know that mindfulness is the path to peace. Breathing out, I know that peace is the path to mindfulness. Breathing in, I know that peace is the path to justice. Breathing out, I know that justice is the path to peace. Breathing in, I know my duty is to provide safety and protection to all beings. Breathing out, I am humbled and honored by my duty as a peace officer. Breathing in, I choose mindfulness as my armor and compassion as my weapon. Breathing out, I aspire to bring love and understanding to all I serve. Thank you for your presence and attention. So let's just sit for a moment, and then um, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take some questions. Are there any questions? Please. against some sticky parts as well. Um, And so 
there's kind of two parts to it. But the first part is there's two elements or two interactions recently where I um, was experiencing. I was with people who I was very close to who were who had kind of the onset of experiencing anxiety, um, and there was a moment in our interaction where I could tell that they were holding a lot and that I could kind of run away from it or that I could I could be there for it and let it come out. And so in both interactions I chose to be like, what are what's going on? You know, do you want to share what you're thinking, feeling, knowing that I probably wouldn't like what I what I heard. Um, and I think in both in both instances it was just pretty it was devastating. It was a mind kind of ridden by anxiety and um, I, you know, in one of them I really tried to reason with it. I had a friend who, a practitioner, said, you know, you can't really reason with anxiety. You know, you know, really in retrospect, seeing it, as, it wasn't really them. It was this force that had come up for them. And so I think for both of these people, when after kind of letting it all out, kind of on me, they found a lot of relief because they were able to express what was in their mind and then just kind of, you know, I could see that person, that anxiety person die and a new person was born. In a lot of ways there wasn't that memory of who they were under anxiety. But for me I found that even though I was able to be pretty present for it, I was like, I was later I was really resonating with all these things that they had said from that place. That was really hard. And so, like, I had been present, but also took on a lot of baggage that, even with some sense of that it wasn't personally them, it was, it was thoughts, and, and, and it was their thoughts and ideas that forever, like, changed my mind. Like, I can't erase them in my mind, I guess. Hmm. Um, so that's just, that was one element. And then just another quick thing was just this, in a kind of one of those interactions, finding myself with an ability to be more truthful than I would normally be. Um, just really stating something. So often I think we skim what's really going on and, and really bringing truth to that situation. But then finding that that person wasn't, able to just, especially from that place of anxiety, was not able to, to hear that truth or see that truth, and so, and really want to denial of that truth, and so, just also thinking about, you know, where it can sometimes, it felt like it was a truth from like a very skillful, mindful place, but they weren't there to meet it, and so, it didn't end up serving, I don't think, a very, like, healthy Well, I have a few responses. Um, first is if if I'm going to be willing to have one of those kinds of interactions, I have to feel like I'm in a really open and connected place rather than a contracted place. And I pay attention to the the 
moments daily that I'm opening and contracting and I experience them. And, you know, I'm not just talking about an overall mental state or mood, but knowing if I'm up for that kind of interaction. That's one thing. The second thing is, is there's nothing wrong with having high quality boundaries. Um, and those can, so compassion can be fierce as well as, as gentle. And I don't know the nature of the interaction and, and what was required or not required, but, you know, with, with high quality boundaries, we're usually protecting our love and caring for somebody. And the third thing is, is when you have interactions like that, you, you, this is what I was talking about, about not being over-identified with or thinking. Everybody is going to have their perceptions. And there are these eight worldly winds. And two of them are called praise and blame. So the same exact action or conversation might bring you praise with one person and blame with another. The same, the, the, I can give the same talk, the same instructions, and get praise from some people and blame from others. And what what it my job is is to understand that I'm not really the object of either, that it's really not about me, but it's about the conditions that were going on in that person's life. Now, that doesn't mean that people have the right to engage in speech that's unmindful and abusive. Um, and that's where, you know, the high-quality boundaries also come into these interactions. Um, because we don't want, we also don't want to be part of watering unconscious behavior. And the other side of that is it's really great if we can be there and be present for it. But we have to ask ourselves at what cost to ourselves and at what cost to our future relationships, not just with this person but with others. So those are just a few thoughts I have in hearing your comments. Yes? Thank you for the talk. That was well organized. Uh, and I appreciate you ending the way you did it, you know, talking about these course, because the question, well, I kind of two, but first, um, if I were a monk, you know, and trying to uh, meditate on not having fixed positions, and living with ambiguity and being accepted, it doesn't seem like the right career path for a police officer. <laughs> Maybe you could draw get it a little bit better. But then the other one, you just used it now, again, was fierce compassion. You said it early on in your talk, you know, and I wanted you to expound upon that just a little bit. You know, explain that. Sure. So... To me, um, well, first of all, I wasn't practicing when I became a police officer. And having told you a little bit about my winning formula, a little bit about my adolescence, the fact that I love sports, I'm a very kinesthetic person, and all of these things, you can, you can, uh, yeah, uh, you can probably, and, you know, quite frankly, I figured if I went into a male profession, I'd make some money. <laughs> so, um, and I, I did. I, you know, over the years got paid uh, pretty well. But I certainly was anything but mindful when I, I started on uh, down the career path of being a police officer. But little by little, 
I, and I ended up at my first retreat almost by accident. I won't go in, into the details, but little by little, that transformation was a very incremental and gradual process, and I started asking myself, how can I bring it to this moment? And what I found when I came home from my very first mindfulness retreat after seven days of really slowing down and being in a totally different way is I couldn't understand why everybody around me had changed, including the people I was arresting. You know, they'd all gotten kinder in my absence. (laughs) And um, I didn't, you know, I'm really, it felt like that. And it, it, so it took me a while to get that it was my own energy and the energy of my presence that was making the difference, that I dipped into something. Now, it didn't last, but it gave me it gave me something, a picture, a vision, a firsthand experience with that well that I could keep coming back to. And in terms of, of fierce compassion, this is very similar to what I was saying about high-quality boundaries. So um, we can, a lot of it is determined by our intention. So the intention be an action can appear very gentle, but if the intention behind it is manipulative, it can be a very unskillful action. For example, maybe I walk around praising you in order to get your support for my viewpoint or my position at work or in an organization. Um, when one examines one's intention. That's a very, that can be a very, almost what, what we would call a very subtle form of a violent intention. If as a police officer I walk into a fight with the intention to bang heads together and use force to end this thing, I'm going to probably behave very differently if I than if I walk into an interaction with the intention to bring some, to restore some peace and stability to the situation. It depends on what I'm armed with. But in terms of high quality boundaries, um, I think of my relationship with, with my youngest son when I talk about this a lot. So when he was in high school, we were in this dynamic of um, he would do something that I just couldn't believe and that was so outrageous to me, I couldn't believe that he would have made that choice. And I would react, get angry, set a boundary from a place of that reactivity, feel guilty about it, then take it back. Right? So the boundary had no integrity whatsoever. None. Zero. And he was learning how to wear me down. Um, so eventually I got a little bit smarter and realized that I couldn't set these boundaries from a reactive place, that I had to really think about what was going to preserve my love for him. Um, what was, what were the things that I needed, not just to do that, but what were the things that I could actually enforce, that I could actually keep? that I actually felt good enough about with respect to the boundary that I would 
maintain its integrity. And I just came up with a couple of things. There were just two things that I needed. And it, we were in this system. Uh, you know, it takes two people. And things got a lot worse before they got better. Because in that system, he was holding out to wear me down. But eventually things turned around. And that's what I mean by fierce compassion and high-quality boundaries. It's not always the gentle compassion of understanding, but the fierce compassion of setting boundaries and knowing that these boundaries protect you and others. Yes? You mentioned something about the willingness to let go I'm sorry. You, you mentioned something in the, toward the beginning of the talk, Sherry, about um, being willing to let go of your wounded self. Yes. Um, you know, a little bit on that. Um, you know, and there's this idea that there is no self. No. Um, is that is that part of a healing standard? Is that is that fantasy? You know, storyline or what is that? Well, it's uh, sort of learning how to, you know, for, it, it has a little bit to do with those identities, you know. Oh, I was raised by two alcoholic parents, E-I-E-I-O. Oh, you know, I experienced... Uh, People wearing happily hetero and straight as an arrow buttons. E-I-E-I-O. Oh, I, I mean, it, it, it. those things require a response on my part. But if I'm attached to defining myself through my core wounds, I can be attached very subtly to that. And that's when I'm not going to be willing to let go of that, those identities. That's when I'm not going to be able to have a sense of my own goodness and my own divinity. Do I make my home there or do I make my home in limitation? So do we ignore our core wounds? No. We get help in reframing them so that we can pull the nuggets out of them. But many of us, I think, are unconsciously attached to a wounded self in some ways. And at times, some people are attached consciously to it, and they wear it like a crown. So um, we just have to examine if we're willing to let go of, yes, we were all wounded. And some of us more so than others. There's no question about that. But where where are we going to put our energy in the possibility of identifying with our original goodness and divinity or in limitation? That's what I mean by it. Got time for one more, I think. Okay, I love it that you're all enlightened. Uh, uh, I want to uh, end by just sharing the merit of our practice tonight and then invite uh, Patrice up here for, for some ending announcements. So 
like to share the merit of our practice together tonight with all beings everywhere. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be mindful and peaceful. May all beings be filled with great ease, love, and compassion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.